Welcome, everybody, to the Fair Mormon Podcast, which is sponsored by the good people at the Fair Group, of which I, Ned Scarsbrick, your host, am a volunteer. Today we have a special guest, Brother Adam S. Miller, and he's the author of the book Letters to a Young Mormon. Adam Miller is a professor of uh, philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. He and his wife, uh, Gwen Miller, have three children. He is the author of five books, including Rube Goldberg Machines, Essays in Mormon Theology, and serves as director of the Mormon Theology Seminar. Well, Adam, uh, welcome to Fair Mormon. Thanks for having me on. I, I admire the work you guys do there at Fair. Well, good. We appreciate that. So, uh, how about uh, you giving our listeners a little background on yourself and the uh, genesis of this book? Well, I was born and raised in the church in Pennsylvania. Uh, my father grew up in the church. My mother joined after she and my father were married. I served a mission in Albuquerque. I earned a bachelor's in comparative literature from Brigham Young University and master's and Ph.D. from Villanova in philosophy. Uh, as you mentioned, I teach philosophy at Collin College. Letters to Young Mormon is my fifth book. My wife and I, we have three kids. I serve as the varsity coach to the scouts in my ward. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it's a nice mix of of stuff. There we go. Good. You know, the uh, first thing I read in the book was uh, the the introduction by Robert Millett. And uh, I have to admit that uh, I'm a uh, serious Bob Millett fan. So if it's all right with you, I'll just go ahead and uh, read his introduction. Sure. Adam Miller's letters to a young Mormon frustrated me. Not that I didn't like it, because I enjoyed it immensely. No, it frustrated me because I only wish I had such a book to read when I was a 1960s teenager with racing mind and hormones. And perhaps more poignantly, I wish it had been available when my children were passing through those difficult years. Letters to a Young Mormon is both tender and gentle, and at the same time provocative and intellectually stimulating. Its disarming honesty is only surpassed by the significance of its message. I recommend it wholeheartedly for young and old. Do you agree with that? Well, I am a Bob Millett fan, too, <laughs> uh, and even more <laughs> after that after that phrase from Bob. But uh, uh, Bob is a friend, and that phrase is very kind, and uh, I appreciate him saying so. Well, good. So, so how old were you when you started to figure uh, this uh, gospel view of life out? I've been thinking about things gospel-related all my life. And in some ways, the things that the book talks about are gospel 101, right? Just basic things that we as Mormons talk about all the time every Sunday. Though in other ways, uh, it's taken me decades here to to work out my own way of talking about these things, to, to find my own voice. Uh, and part of that has been through my work as a professional philosopher, and part of that has just come from becoming a husband and a father and uh, serving in the church. Hmm, good. You know, talking about the church, you, you know in the church we all get the same basic map of life, but traveling the road on the map, as it says on page 9 of your book, you must bear wholeheartedly the fact that the work of living your life can't be done by anyone else. I don't hear how to travel the road a lot in church, 
Am I just not listening, or is or is this just taught in an indirect manner to avoid the one-size-fits-all paradigm? Well, again, in one sense, I think the how is really obvious, right? The how is to pray and read your scriptures and go to church and do your home teaching and have family home evening. In that sense, the how is is really straightforward and really obvious. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of learning how to pray in a way that's meaningful or learning how to study our scriptures in a way that actually connects us with God and with the Spirit, that kind of thing takes a lot of time and trial and error and experience and uh, help from helpful people along the way. I think a really good example of something like that uh, is listening to the Spirit. Right, listening to the Spirit, people can explain that to you all day long, every day. Uh, but the only way in the end you'll ever have a feel for what the Spirit is like, uh, what His voice sounds like, how it reaches out into your life to direct you, that depends on a lot of time and practice and trial and error. And no one else can do that work for you. You have to, you have to find out from the inside out uh, what the Spirit's like. Yeah, from the inside out, I, I like that. That's good. The book's uh, chapters, or you list them letters, are by subjects such as agency, work, prayer, all the way through to eternal life. A constant theme I hear over and over again was, live God's story in your life, not your own story. Could you explain this model? Well, I think stories are an important part of life. The stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and our, our place in the world. And in particular, the stories that God wants us to know about who we are in relationship to Him. Those are really crucial too. But I think a lot of the gospel boils down to our recognizing that God isn't just trying to tell us a story, but that He's trying to give us a life. And no matter how good the stories are, sto our stories are always too small and too narrow uh, to take in the scope of the really big, robust, complicated, and sometimes messy life that God wants us to live here in relationship with Him and our families. I, I think that's good. You, you know, I, I tell people uh, this kind of worldview and that their lives are really not about them. And they look at me like I got lobsters crawling out in my ears. Mm -hmm. yeah. Here's a quote from page 22 of your book. He saves you by revealing that even your own life was never about you. You want to respond to that? I think one nice definition of sin we could give would be that you and I are living in sin when we bear the crushing burden of thinking that our lives are about ourselves, right? That's what it means to be yes. in sin. I'm in sin when I think that life is about me. And that is itself a kind of crushing burden uh, that is its own punishment. My life is, is not my own. Uh, I didn't give it to me. It's not for me. Uh, it comes from God. It comes from my parents. It's for the sake of my own family, for my own children. It's for the sake of the people around me in the world. And a lot of the liberation, I think, that the gospel has to offer flows directly from the revelation that my life is not about me. And when I can put down the burden of trying to make it about me, there's a kind of immense 
freedom and gratitude that arises out of it uh, that allows us to live our lives in a joyful way. Good, good. Let's talk a little bit about faith. On On page 28, you say, faith is more like being faithful to your husband or wife than it is like believing in magic. Fidelity is the key. Could you respond to that? Yeah, I think sometimes when we talk about faith, we talk about it as if it had to do with my agreeing to a laundry list of statements. Right? If I agree to statement X and statement Y and statement Z, uh, then I have faith. But I think that's a that's a pretty narrow, pretty thin description of what's actually involved in faith. Faith, I think, has a lot more to do with what it means to be in a relationship with another person, in particular in relationship to God, who you and I as Mormons take to be a genuine person. And God as a person, to be in a relationship with him, that requires the same kind of faithfulness that my relationship to my wife does. It requires my being patient, it requires my listening, it requires my being faithful to them and my expression of love for them. It requires my being willing to let go of my story about what I think God or my wife should be like and instead love them for who they are, for what they give me. That's the point at which I think the rubber hits the road with respect to our relationships with other people when we can be when we can manage to be faithful to them even when they don't match up with what it is we thought we wanted from them. Mm, Good. That's good. I really like that. That sounds extremely mature. I I really like your advice on uh, prayer. Uh, Page 37, when you pray, the most important thing is to stay awake and listen. You you think that's true? I think that's that's absolutely true. As, As a practical matter, I don't think it's uncommon for people to kneel down beside their beds in in the morning or at the end of the day to offer up a prayer and end up just plain going to sleep. Uh, that's that's certainly within the realm of my experience. Is that uh, is that within the realm of your experience too? Yes, I did. My my attention span seems to be limited. My mind wanders, and pretty soon, in fifteen sixteen seconds, I'm somewhere else. Yeah, even if we even if we don't actually pass out, uh, lots of times our attention has wandered so far from the prayer so quickly that uh, we didn't get much praying done. I think a lot of the work of learning how to pray is the work of learning how to pay attention long enough for not only us to say something to God, but for God to say something to us in return. And learning how to pay attention like that, I think, is straightforwardly a kind of skill that just comes with time and practice and persistence. And the work of prayer is the work of having knelt down to pray and found my attention wandering off. The work of prayer begins when I notice that my attention has wandered off and I try to bring it back to God again. Now our attention attention will wander off again. That's the kind of thing uh, a human head tends to be. But the work of prayer is, regardless of how many times my attention wanders off, that I notice it and I come back again to what it is that I was trying to do. You never give up trying. Yeah. Yeah, good. I think that's right. Uh, On page uh, 47, you say, To demand that church leaders, past and present, 
show us only a mask, angelic, pseudo-perfection, is to deny the gospel's most basic claim that God's grace works through our weakness. We need prophets, not idols. Could you respond to that? Well, I think that's true. The good news of the gospel is not that God can work with people who are practically perfect, uh, but that God can work with people like you and me who aren't. The good news of the gospel is that God can reach out to and work with people who are sinners and people who are weak and mortal. And the prophets in that sense, the prophets aren't exception to the rule of, of how the gospel works. The prophets are the proof that it works, that God really can speak to us through people who are weak and mortal and have problems of their own, uh, and that because he can do that with them, he can do it with us as well. I think sometimes you know, we, like to, we like to hide behind a little bit the idea that the prophets are practically perfect people because it lets us off the hook. If I have to be practically perfect for God to be doing some kind of work in my life, then uh, good for the prophets, uh, but that doesn't really apply to me anymore. Hmm, I agree. So, so if leader X is wrong about issue Y, what else are they wrong about? How can we trust what they teach? You know, you know, in corporate America, if you question the leader, you get fired. And I think that idea has carried over somewhat into the church. If you question stake president or bishop so-and-so, you're not faithful. Your church career is in jeopardy. You think that happens sometime in the church? Yeah, I think that happens. Uh, and I think that's not an uncommon way to think about my relationship to the church as if it were some kind of career uh, though I think we're probably in deep trouble once we start thinking about our relationship to the church in that way, as if the church were a business and as if I were trying to have some kind of successful career in it rising through the ranks or some such thing. I think in lots of really important ways, the church ends up being very different from a business. Though also in some pretty obvious ways, the church is literally a business, a corporation, right? But despite the despite the fact that the church has a kind of uh, of necessity, a corporate dimension to it. The ecclesiastical dimension, I think, has a very different character. Now, the ecclesiastical dimension relies, one, on God speaking through the prophet, two, on our willingness to hear uh, the prophet's words, and three, on our willingness to get confirmation from the Spirit that the pro- what the prophet said is what God wanted us to have heard. And I think all three of those things are according to the Doctrine and Covenants, crucial parts of what it means to be a responsible member of the church. Good. I, I, I agree with that. I think that was well said. What about sin? On page 60, you state, see the truth about sin and the spiritual death that sin causes. Sin is a way of recoiling in fear from life's vulnerabilities. You know, I, haven't, I don't think I've ever heard it expressed quite that way. Could you, uh, could you expand on that? I think this is a really crucial thing to see about the character of sin, that sin is fundamentally a kind of defensive gesture, that you and I finding ourselves in a position where we're afraid that our story about how our lives should go won't turn out the way that we want, uh, that we might be hurt, that we might lose things, that we might never achieve what we'd hoped to achieve, uh, we end up then 
withdrawing, running away. We end up uh, stealing things or breaking things or abandoning things. Right? We end up turning to sin as a way of fending off the all the different ways that we could get hurt when we open ourselves up in love to the world around us. And I think when we can see that about the nature of sin, when we can see the way that at root sin is a kind of defensive gesture, then we automatically start responding both to our own sinfulness and to other people's sinfulness with the kind of compassion that we didn't have before. Yeah, compassion kind of... uh... It seems like to me that compassion sometimes is a modest commodity within the church. We have a tendency sometimes to be uh, uh, judgmental and critical of others if they don't live up to um, standard X, whatever we think they should do or not do. Yeah, we're we're sticklers for the law, and there are positive uh, there are positive effects that come from that. But we have to watch out too for the dark side, because it's so easy to misuse the law we hurt ourselves and other people with it instead of extending compassion to them through it. I agree. I uh, I read Brother uh, Trevor uh, Holyoke's review of your book, and I agree with some of his comments, in particular to the age group you are addressing. I, I, I don't know if your basic 16-year-old could understand this material. Am I just not giving our youth enough credit? On the one hand, I think the answer is yes. I think in general... Despite all of our rhetoric about them being a chosen generation, etc., that we don't give them enough credit. On the other hand, I think that part of what I'm after in this book is trying to offer an invitation to think harder, to love more, to be more open, to widen the perspective. Uh, And in that sense, the book, I mean it as a kind of challenge to our youth to step up to the plate and do more maybe than they thought that they could. Mm -hmm. The other part of that is that, you know, I wrote this book in particular with my own children in mind. My oldest is 13 now, and I have an actual bona fide teenager. (laughs) And my, my boys are seven and nine. And I wrote this with them in mind trying to take into account both the things that I wanted them to know right now and the things that I thought they might need for later. And it's not always easy to tell the difference between the two, and that might vary from individual to individual what they need to know now and what they need to know later. But I wanted there to be I wanted there to be things in the book both that they could use and then things that maybe they ought to just remember for later. Yeah, we all grow at a different rate, and what may be appropriate for someone at uh, 16 may not be appropriate for someone else until they're 18. Yeah, and it's also true, I think, of this book that this book, though I'm speaking to youth, I speak to them as adults. Yeah, I noticed that in your book. You're talking to them as if if they're, uh, uh, they're serious people. They're not little children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to mention about your book? And one thing I'd like to mention is that the book, in a very intentional way, kind of line by line and letter by letter, introduces a kind of shift in perspective. I try to introduce the readers of the book to a different way of thinking about all the familiar things that we talk about every week in church on Sunday. And in that respect, 
because the book kind of letter by letter and line by line introduces the reader to that different perspective i don't it i think it's uh, it's probably really important to read the book straightforward from beginning to end rather than piece by piece or out of order uh, because that will i think work best in line with the book's own rhetorical strategy one principle builds upon another type of idea yeah Okay. And uh, one, in in light of what was said before, the things that I say later in the book make a lot more sense than they might uh, if the earlier parts hadn't been read. Right. I agree. I think yeah. the other thing I'd want to say about the book, uh, and I think it's something that I hope is really obvious, uh, is that the book, that the shift in perspective that the book tries to introduce is a faithful perspective, that it's one that wears on its sleeve my commitment to God and my love for the gospel and my testimony hard won as it has been. I agree. That was good. Well, you know, I really enjoyed your book and I learned uh, quite a bit. And as a matter of fact, I, I, uh, after I read it, I set it down and thought about it. Then I read it again. And I learned even more. It's one of those things I think that uh, it requires uh, commitment, a uh, internal shift within our world view to uh, continue to grow God's way instead of maybe uh, uh, Ned's way or Adam's way. Well, I'm glad you had that experience. Yeah, good. Well, I, th I think we're about ready to uh, close up shop here. You got any closing comments? No, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's, it's, been, it's, gonna, it's been a great opportunity. I think this has been time well spent. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast may not reflect those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of the Fair Mormon Group. Thank you.